Good morning. And we're going to turn to our scripture reading now. And our passage this morning is 1 John, the first letter of John, and chapter 1. If you'd like to turn to it in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1225. You probably will find it helpful to have it open in front of you as we work our way through this passage this morning. So 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read the whole of the chapter and I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 2 as well because it feels like they belong together really. So chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We thank God for his word to us. So we're starting a new sermon series uh, this week, looking at this first letter written by John. And this John who's writing the letter is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And so he was one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' inner circle. Those ones who were closest to him. The ones who saw and heard everything. And who would have known him best. But John is older now. At the time of him writing this letter, it's, it's maybe 50 years since Jesus lived and died and John is an old man now and he's writing this letter to a little church that he planted some years earlier a little group of believers 
who were struggling. They were going through some hard times. There had been disagreements over theology and personalities. So we can forget any illusions we might have that the early churches who were much closer in time to Jesus than we are, that they weren't troubled by the kinds of things that trouble us in church. There were disagreements, divisions, and splits right from the earliest days. Being together as a community of believers was hard, right from the beginning. And John is writing this letter to encourage them at a time when they're feeling wobbly and bruised. And he's writing to reaffirm what he taught them about Jesus. So it's important that we understand right at the outset, at the start of this series, that this letter is not just John writing nice things to his friends. He's writing to a group of believers who've been really shaken by disagreements, who've been attacking each other, and they're finding it genuinely hard to remember what it means to show love to one another. And are wondering whether this Jesus business is really worth it anyway. And John wants to help them get back on track. And so he calls them back to basics. And this letter of his is a call to that group of believers who are feeling lost and confused and not really sure what they believe anymore. He calls them to get back to the heart of their faith, to go back to the beginning and remind themselves what their foundations are and why they matter. And so we too are going to do that. So let's look at our chapter then this morning, the opening section of John's letter. And you may have in your copy in front of you this, the heading at the beginning of the section, the incarnation of the word of life. Now the headings are not original, they were added later by others, but that certainly sums up what this section, these first four verses are about. The word of life is Jesus, and so that bit is telling us that he is God. And the incarnation is the coming of Jesus in a human body, the putting on by God this word of life, of human flesh, and entering our world. So that bit is telling us that he came as a man. So right from the outset here, John is making a really important point, and he's refuting some false teaching that had been going around. A certain group had come along who had arrived at the conclusion that the godness of Jesus meant that he couldn't possibly have been a real man. He couldn't possibly have come in a human body. God couldn't and wouldn't do that. And this teaching was known as docetism. And they taught that Jesus had only seemed to have a, a body, a human body, that actually he was really a spirit 
and he only appeared to be human. I've got a slide with the word docetism on it, if you can put that up. I think I've got a slide with the word docetism on it. There it is. What John is doing in this prologue, in these first four verses, is he's categorically challenging and refuting that teaching as untrue. This whole section here is proclaiming the incarnation, that Jesus was God, but he was also a real human being. And John is using his position as an eyewitness as his proof. I was there. I can bring my testimony as an eyewitness does in court that this is true, that it really happened. I've heard him, he says in verse 1. He's spent weeks and months and years traveling with Jesus and listening to his teaching. This is how I know it's true. I sat listening to him through the whole of his ministry. Could you put that slide up with those words on it? please, that I've heard him. And he says that I've seen it. It's what we've seen with our eyes. And the second word that he uses there, which the NIV translates as looked at, that word means gazed upon, concentrated, thoughtful observation. Like if I had an object in my hands and I looked at it, by examining it, turning it, and looking at it from every angle, really getting to know its facets and details. The verb he's using here means to gaze upon something or someone until you have grasped the real meaning and significance of that person or thing. I have seen him and I have understood the meaning and the significance of what I've seen in him. And I've touched him, he says. And the touching is important because if Jesus was just a spirit and didn't have a real human body in the flesh, then he couldn't have touched him. No, says John. I felt the warmth of his skin on my hands. I felt his breath on my face. I've smelled his smell when he was hot and sweaty. I've eaten and drunk with him. He was no myth or ghost or illusion. He was real. This is the one. I'm proclaiming to you, he says in verse 3, this is the one I'm telling you about. Back to basics. Remember what I taught you. This is really important. The generation that had seen Jesus with their own eyes was almost gone by this time. There were very few of them left. John is one of the few who were left alive. The new generations now hadn't seen him for themselves. They had come to faith through the testimony of those who had seen him. And they're finding it hard. 
Life as a Christian wasn't easy back then. In that society, it was hard. And understandably, some of them are beginning to say, well, is all of it really true? Who is this Jesus anyway? Can we really trust him? Some of them are teetering on the edge of walking away. It's just too hard. And how can we really be sure anyway? But John wants to say to them, yes, you haven't seen him, but I have. This is my personal eyewitness testimony that I knew him. He is truly the Son of God. I trust him. And you can trust him too. They've been discovering, as we also discover, that following Jesus doesn't lead to an easy life. We have struggles and difficulties and pain, things that we wouldn't have necessarily if we weren't choosing to follow him. We have wobbles and doubts and confusion. And life throws up all kinds of questions that we can't answer. It can be hard to find a firm place to stand. But Jesus says, John, you can trust him. He is the real deal. I can vouch for him. You can keep trusting him, even when things are really hard. And I'm writing to you because I don't want you to stop trusting him. I want you to hold on. He isn't a fake or a fraud. He is God. He is trustworthy. And he won't let you down. So our first back to basic then is that John has affirmed the truth about Jesus. That he was God who came in a real human body. There was no fakery. It was real. And he was trustworthy. John testifies to that as someone who saw it for himself, who was there on the spot. And then the next bit, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now, you may assume that the important bit of that sentence is the second half, but actually the first half is just as important. This idea of God being light is not an idea that John has arrived at by himself. It's a message he's received from someone else, and that someone else is Jesus. And so it has authority. His source for this message, this information, is God himself. And it's not just any old message, oh, could you just give them this message for me? What John means here is that this message, this was the entirety of what Jesus came to communicate about God. This is the core and central doctrine and message from which everything else flows. And what is that message? 
that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He's not saying that God literally is light. He's not saying that he's the sun. It's a metaphor. He's saying that God is like light. He has the qualities of light. His nature and his being are like light in terms of the effect that they have. He makes us feel safe. He shows us the way we need to go. He enables us to see reality. He brings clarity and vision. God has chosen light as the primary expression of who he is. Light is the metaphor God has chosen for himself to help us understand what he's like. So our back to basics number two is that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In the Greek text, the negative in that sentence is repeated for emphasis. John says, there is no darkness in him, none. So John is continuing to teach them why they can trust in this Jesus that he's been telling them about, who came as a real man. This is the central message that this man who is God came to say, that God is like light, and he is 100% light. There are no dark spots, no shady areas, Nothing hidden, no lies, no deceit. Nothing that you cannot trust. All of the theological arguing had left them feeling bruised and confused. And things that had seemed so certain didn't feel so certain anymore. Where is my firm place to stand? Where, in all this confusion and hostility, can I find solid ground anymore? In Jesus, says John, to them and to us, bring your eyes back to Jesus again. When everything else gets too much and you don't know what to think anymore, bring your eyes back to Jesus and what we know for sure about him And hold on to that. Just get the stuff about Jesus right. And everything else can follow on from that. And then in in verse 6, once we have his light, we need to stay in it and not go back to walking in the darkness again. In this second section, verses 6 to 10, John makes three statements where he is challenging and refuting false teaching, false claims that were being made. They each begin with, if we claim. And you can see them, if you've got your Bible open, you can see them in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. So the first one is here in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
And here we have a real fundamental truth about our Christian faith, that we actually have to live out what we believe. These things that we read, these sermons that we hear, these prayers that we pray and the songs that we sing, we actually need to do something with them. Our words need to match the person that we are and the way that we conduct ourselves. If they don't, then it's all a sham. If we don't live out in other places the things that we do and hear and say when we're in this place, we're lying, says John. That's not faith. That's not how it works. You know, as a preacher, um, you read and study and wrestle with words as you try to work out the message that God wants you to bring. And you come and deliver it, but I'm really aware every time that unless the hearers have come to church wanting and expecting to hear from God, unless you arrive here willing to be changed by what you hear, wanting it to impact your life, to learn from it, to actually allow it to change you, to change the person that you are, to change your heart, and to change how you live. Then it won't matter how long I spend at my desk. We're all really happy to give our judgment every week on whether we thought the sermon was any good or not. I'm as guilty of that as anyone. But in the end, it doesn't matter how good the sermon was if you don't let it change you. So our back to basics number three is that what we believe should change how we live and behave. And then look at verse 7. Look at the result of that, the promise. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we do this, if we are willing to submit to God's work in our lives, to allow him to change us, not just once 30 years ago, but daily, regularly working on us and changing us, we're willing to work at truly living out what we say and sing, here is the result. Then we will have fellowship with one another. And so our back to basics number four is that authentically living out what we believe is what will enable true fellowship and unity. We're going to see later in this letter that this group were finding it really hard to be in fellowship with one another. The meaning of the word fellowship, the definition is a group of people or an organisation with the same purpose. I've got a picture to illustrate that. Not all just doing their own thing. 
The reality is this is really hard. But what's really encouraging for us is to know that even in the early church, they found this hard. And I think that what John is doing here is he's giving them a guide for how to do it. And if we take verses 6 and 7 together, he's telling them that if they walk in the light, if they are living out what they believe, if they are allowing God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit to change them, and if they are living and behaving in ways that demonstrate that, that is the key that will unlock this thing that we are called to strive for. That's called fellowship with one another. Is true and authentic fellowship and unity what you long to see in this church? If it is, then each one of us needs to come here week by week ready and willing to be challenged and changed by what we hear and ready and willing to take seriously the need to live it out and to allow it to change the way we live. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is a direct reference to some false teaching that was being circulated, which was that as believers, we don't have sin in us. That sin is no longer part of our nature. That by believing in God, we have, in fact, become like God ourselves. And he has given us his sinless nature. Wrong, says John. You know that's not what I taught you. If we think we're capable of being without sin in our nature, we're deceiving ourselves and we've departed from the truth. We've all got a sin problem. I've got a sin problem. You've got a sin problem. Every person in this room has a sin problem. The glorious truth is that Jesus has dealt with our sin and has dealt with the ultimate consequences of our sin, but don't let that fool you into thinking that sin is no longer an issue for you. The human heart is sinful. We have to face up to that. No matter how holy we become, we will never be sin-free. I wonder if you can think of an example of a person that you know or have known who you would regard as being particularly godly, particularly close to God, and sometimes you wish you could be like them. The truth is that that person isn't any less sinful than you or anyone else. The truth is that that person will have a very clear understanding and awareness of the places in their life and their character where they fall short, and where they still need the grace of God. And I want to suggest that 
perhaps that clarity of awareness is one of the factors that enables them to draw closer to God. The brighter a light shines and the closer we get to a light, the more blemishes are revealed and in greater detail. That's the nature of light, isn't it? The more we allow God's light to shine into our hearts and lives, the more clarity and awareness we will have of the things in our nature which are sin and which we need him to help us with. So our back to basics number five is that regular, honest examination of ourselves an honest confession of our sin is what will keep us close to God and will keep us in his light. On to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's God's approach to sin. You don't need to fool yourself that you don't sin. The key to healthy spirituality is regular, realistic confession to God. And it's really important that we don't separate the second half of the statement from the first half. Yes, confess to God honestly and humbly. And then look. This is really important. When we do that, he is faithful and merciful and he will forgive us our sins and make us clean again we're nearly finished chapter 2 verse 2 gives us our ultimate teaching and doctrine about sin it says that jesus christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only ours but also for the sins of the whole world it's also referenced in verse 7 of chapter 1 that it's the blood of Jesus which purifies us from all our sin. It isn't anything that we have done or can do. Only Jesus can do it. So our back to basics number 6, the last one. It's the blood of Jesus, his death and resurrection. They are the only things that can deal with this sin problem that we have. So can you see how in these, in these verses, in this whole chapter, John is reaffirming all the basic foundations of their faith to help them find a firm place to stand. Let's just recap them again. They're on the screen there. Firstly, that Jesus was truly God. And he was also truly a man. He lived here on this earth, among us, as one of us. Don't let anyone tell you any different, says John. Secondly, that God and Jesus is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. Nothing hidden. Nothing bad. You can trust him. Thirdly, that walking in God's light means we actually have to live out what we believe. 
and let it change us and shape us. And fourthly, that when we do that, that is what enables real fellowship and unity in the body. And number five, that we all have a sin problem. Walking in God's light also means regular, realistic recognition of our own sin. That's what will keep us close to him. And then lastly, that only the blood, the death of Jesus, can ultimately deal with our sin problem. We put our trust in him and in the blood he shed for us as the only thing that can save us. So as you look at those now, as we just leave them on the screen and you look at those, which of those is God's word to you this morning? Which of those is speaking to you? Which of them do you need to just catch hold of and take away with you to think through some more? And as we come to approach the Lord's table, as we will do in a moment, what is there in you that you need to recognize as the reality of your own sin today? And will you ask God to shine his light more brightly into your heart and life, to reveal to you more clearly the places where you need him to change you? Paul and Grace are going to come back up now, and Paul's just going to play through a song, and I'd like us to sit and listen, first of all, and just to use that quietness for our own prayer and confession before God. And then Grace will sing, and the words will be on the screen, and if you want to join in then, please feel free to do that.